What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. And welcome back to Filmography John Carpenter. I'm Dominic Suzanne Mayer. I'm the film editor at Consequence of Sound and also the recurring host of this particular podcast program. And with that, I'd like to introduce my two guests for this week. Hi, it's me, Katie Reif from theavclub.com. Hi, uh, Mike Vanderbilt, Daily Grindhouse. Thank you both for coming on to join me for week three, John Carpenter versus The Man. Now, in our first two discussions, we have definitely touched on Carpenter's general cynicism about political authority and just authority at large, and how even certain authority figures, as we're going to see in our couple of our movies, are often pitted against one another. But before we jump into our discussion on tonight's films, which will be... 1976's Assault on Precinct 13, 1978's TV movie Someone's Watching Me! Exclamation point, 1981's Escape from New York, and 1996's Escape from L.A. Now, through these movies, I'm going to open up the floor to the two of you. How does Carpenter grapple with not just, you know, the politics of authority, but also the ways in which authority fails people a lot of the time. Uh, well, a recurring theme you that ran through all the movies that we watched for this week that I noticed is um, kind of like higher up authority figures who would make promises that they, you know, just really didn't intend to keep or, you know, just the way that uh, the Snake Plissken is kind of tricked into going on both of his missions and then in Assault on Precinct 13, you have the character... Uh, the main character, he's a sergeant or what's his rank? Lieutenant. The lieutenant, yeah. Uh, you know, he's kind of been sold a larger bill of goods and that he has, you know, faith in being a police officer and all that. And then it also in in Somebody's Watching Me, uh, the the woman, the star, Lauren Hutton, she tries to go to the cops and they tell her they're going to look out for her and then they don't. So it's a lot of like broken promises. The police are always kind of inept too. In all of his things, in all of his uh, works, or just not very good at their job, or what do I want to say? Um, the police never are very good at their jobs, in their, or at least they're not to be. They're just simply not to be trusted. They're always up to no good. They're always out for their own uh, their own devices. It seems rather than um, the heroes in question. 
Yeah, he seems to think that all systems are corrupt because people are corrupt and inept and just covering up for their own um, misdeeds all the time. And I imagine a lot of that cynicism comes from being uh, Southern California via uh, Kentucky. He, growing up in the uh, civil rights era, I don't. I think he has a natural cynicism or an aversion to authority figures, in particular police. Well, absolutely. And you also situate the time frame of the majority of these movies with Escape from L.A. being the obvious outlier of the bunch. This is very much informed by a lot of Vietnam and post-Vietnam cynicism, a lot absolutely. of the cynicism of the economic downturn of the 70s, and a lot of the cynicism about the idea of absolute American authority in so many words, being suspect, being morally corrupt. I mean, we talked about this a lot last week in regards to They Live, Mm -hmm. but you're going to see that ethic popping up in a lot of his much earlier films here. Yeah, uh, I was actually a little surprised that They Live wasn't in the John Carpenter versus the Man section, because to me, that is one of the most anti-establishment films ever, maybe not ever made, but ever made by a studio, that's for sure. Even if, like, it was him trying to kind of saunter out of the studio system by that point, especially after an entire 1980s inside mm-hmm. 1980s Hollywood studios. I mean, yeah, a lot of that bitterness comes through. But even with, um, and I guess I'll take that as an opportunity to jump straight into Assault on Precinct 13, then. One of Carpenter's earliest films, his earliest non-student feature after Dark Star, you have a Carpenter who's already, like not only worked out the aesthetic in a lot of ways that was going to follow him through the rest of his career and especially make him a household name with Halloween two years later, but you also get that fully aggressively political carpenter for better and worse, who is, you know, trying to grapple with these ideas of what happens when authority, Katie, to your point, absolutely lets you down. like hell it's all we got who goes i gotta tell you i don't know how to hotwire a car i'm a cop between me and snow white shit 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 what's wrong we haven't flipped a coin yet i'm gonna lose you got a bad attitude wells i always lose had bad luck all my life. Now, how do you think I ended up in here? Uh, one thing that I thought was interesting, I rewatched this movie for the uh, podcast, and I kept thinking about the movie Black Klansman during it. It's, it was very similar to Black Klansman, kind of in its view of where you have like a decent black cop surrounded by kind of shitty white cops. Uh, its view of the, the the criminal justice system is pretty similar, I think. Well, and right, that's actually a really interesting comparison because right down to the fact that it starts with an eager black officer desperate for actual work to do, getting plunged into a nightmare scenario thanks to a fringe subculture. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of correlation there. And I mean, for a film in 76, especially, I mean, this is bitter, bitter stuff. And there was a lot of subversive filmmaking happening in Hollywood during this time, but then, now, forever, films that could even be mildly construed as anti-police are always going to rankle hairs. Now, what concerned people at the time of release most about Assault on Precinct 13 
is uh, the sequence in which a small girl is shot in the chest and killed on screen. They kill a kid, y'all. That is, <clears throat> according to my Uncle Bob, who uh, he was one of the guys who really got me into horror movies and stuff of this ilk, he said he just caught that part on Showtime uh, sometime <laughs> in the early 80s and was immediately hooked. Like that that was it. He said, I can't believe they just killed that kid. Well, it just wasn't done then, was it? I mean, it's still pretty rare. Yeah, it's still it's still pretty taboo, especially when it's not something supernatural like the opening of it or something like that, but instead just this brazen instance of violence in a film that has several of those in the early minutes. Yeah, I one I something I think is interesting about the gang in this movie is that it the gang doesn't seem to have any sort of political agenda beyond just generalized hatred of everyone because it's not the gang isn't it's not along racial lines. Well, and I actually mentioned that on like a radio call in the movie. They make it a point to say and it, the the multiracial notion of the gang was brought to attention. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's the one thing that I mean, we can discuss this, but it's the one thing that kind of holds the movie back or at least inhibits it a little from falling into full-blown exploitation even if then the corollary is by the end of the film we're ultimately situating the street gang as night of the living dead zombies down to the fact that some of the late sequences in the basement are framed almost identically to the climax of (laughs) night of the living dead at the same time i think there's something really interesting to the way in which this film is aged especially now when i mean This film, if anything, feels even more prescient now, and I'm going to come back to that buzzword a few times on this episode, but it feels as, if anything, even more prescient now than when it was remade a little bit over a decade ago with Lawrence Fishburne and Ethan Hawke in the leading roles. And a lot of that, I think, comes from the fact that, you know, the natural suspicion, the isolation, that, if anything is being mirrored in a lot more pop culture nowadays than it even was. I mean, it was fashionable at the time, and it's made a huge comeback in recent vintage. I mean, I thought that uh, Assault on Precinct 13 really kind of brought in the notion. A lot of, I noticed, uh, Carpenter's works, particularly the Escape movies and Assault on Precinct 13, and even if you want to get into Halloween a little bit, is about uh, suburban fears and white flight. It's very much preying on a lot of those ideas of, you know, the the tension of the other, the paranoia of the other. And it's made very literal here, at least in like the cop and criminal dynamic, even if in a curious way, the races are switched in terms of that power dynamic, at least a little bit. I mean, this is also a movie where like, a white guy in maximum security chains, who we never find out exactly why he's in jail. I like to think he's a serial killer. I, I that that's kind of my read too. Well, all the other cops know who he is, so he's he's notorious for something. Either that or a bank robber, something notorious. I figured bank robber. Yeah, yeah. and the thing is, the minute he's handed a gun, there was that little flash in the back of my head where I was like, you know, you flip this sequence in the mid seventies, and this would have read even bolder than it does here because there is something about like the automatic trust that we put in Winston and how backwards that is in a lot of respects, because to that exact point, we have no idea why he's in jail. There's this, this idea that once he saves lives, he is inherently trustworthy, which I think even if it's left kind of implicit, the movie is playing with in its way. Um, Well, I want to back up for a minute, and I think Carpenter is deliberately 
like I think that he was deliberately switching the racial dynamic of it. Um, uh, I mean, George Romero always said that, you know, he just hired the main uh, the lead from Night of Living Dead because he was the best actor. But, you know, I mean, there was a little bit of element of political shit, you know, pot stirring with that. And, and I think Carpenter is doing that, too. But I think he's doing it for apolitical ends, if that makes sense, where he, he I don't think he's on the cop side or the criminal side. I don't think Carpenter, I think he knows that there are fears of white flight and he's playing on them, but he doesn't believe in that, I don't think. I think this movie is extremely morally ambivalent. Oh, yeah. I I mean, I would absolutely agree. Like, I don't think, I think if there's any kind of stark commentary, it's just the fear of an outside force, which to your point is him very much trading on that audience panic, particularly of that era, as far as, you know, the alarm of seeing an entire street gang lined, acro- lined up across the street like 20 Michael Myerses in a shoulder-to-shoulder row. Right. On that note, I think uh, Carpenter's just really into, like, nameless evil. He's really into just, like, motiveless, nameless evil. Well, and that's the one thing. Other than the Cholo blood oath at one point midway through the film, there's never really a rationale given beyond this man killed one of theirs. Now they're coming for everybody. And which which is arguably about as much as you need to get an action movie going. And one of the things that I adore about this film as well is the way in which it gets in and out in under 90 minutes, which is a virtue that action movies are still trying to nail down <laughs> decades later. And it is very primal, that uh, need for revenge against one of, their, one of your own, because that's what kind of kicks out everything, because the white warlord kills a little girl, the grandfather... Was it the grandfather? I think or it's the father? her dad. It's her dad kills him, and now they're looking for revenge on him for doing what he did. And that's the thing. It's if anything, it's getting at these ideals of endless cycles of violence, yeah. begetting only more violence. Because eventually, the siege leads to a hilariously Area Fifty One style shooting gallery sequence where a bunch of red shirts, including John Carpenter, at one point, climb through the windows and are then blasted back out of them. <laughs> it's also very Dawn of the Dead, but this movie came out a year or two years before Dawn of the Dead. Two, two, two years before Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, and I was going to say, it predates a lot of other films that it reminded me of in a really interesting way, because the other thing that obviously comes to mind, especially with the streaking, is Walter Hill's The Warriors. And this is predating that by three years, and there are a lot of aesthetic similarities in terms of especially how Hill depicts open, massive urban spaces as deeply claustrophobic, in the same way that Carpenter does here. You have the lieutenant repeatedly going back to the point of, you know, how can nobody hear this? We're in the middle of a big city. And that really ratchets up that sense of this should all feel more open than it does. I mean, I think I think the police station feels isolated. I mean, it's L.A., so it's, you know, inherently different than New York. I mean, no matter how claustrophobically you shoot L.A., it's got cul-de-sacs and trees and shit it's different (laughs) i also think what's really interesting especially in the way that they choose to render you know a lot of the space too and this is kind of jumping the gun into the visual discussion but the way the police station is set up there is a total spatial clarity to every room i know when someone goes through a doorway into off-screen space where they're going within the station there is a kind of composed interior continuity to that that 
I mean, it obviously it heightens the stakes because you know exactly where danger can come from, but it also creates kind of this sense of there, like this kind of despairing sense of then there is no outside world. And well, any any film that takes place mostly in one location. Um, that's just smart screenwriting from a producer's standpoint. It's just cheaper to shoot things in one location. So it always helps. Well, and the other thing, too, is that, you know, you, you're going to go on to see this in a bunch of Carpenter's movies. And if we're talking about this establishing some of those really early influences and motifs, a lot of the whole team being whittled down and kind of forced together in a close-knit ecosystem kind of recalls The Thing, which we discussed a couple weeks ago. Yeah, and the film's just really claustrophobic, and especially the basement sequences remind me a lot of the bunker from The Thing, just the way that it's shot is very is similar. Well, I think uh, Carpenter does something very similar in this one he does in Halloween, where when he starts out the film, it's very open. Um, for lack of a better word, you get the vistas of uh, 1970s Los Angeles. But And it does the same thing with Halloween, where you kind of get the, the neighborhood, you get the trees, you get everything. And as the film moves on, it gets more and more claustrophobic, not only in its sensibilities, but in the way it's shot. Everything's a lot tighter, right down to where you get into a hallway in a basement where there's no way out. Oh, absolutely. And there's that there's that hellish shot of the reveal where you're waiting to see you know who walks out of the boiler room. Which is which is an outstanding reveal, and it also leads straight into the the kind of ellipsis on the ending, which is something else Carpenter really fancies. Not just an open ending, but sort of an ending that reads like it's concluding in the middle of a scene that's moving on to something else. Mm -hmm. There's an openness to it, and kind of an openness to the whole idea of again, you know, this as a repetitive cycle of violence that'll just keep happening over and over and over again. That leaves a really interesting, like, Katie, to your earlier point, moral ambiguity over where the film ends up heading. Yeah, um, I, I, I just, I think, yeah, I don't think he's trying to really, it's a very political film, but I'm not sure that he has a specific political point in mind. He, it's just very, it's kind of, it's, it's exploitation in the sense that it's, you know, playing on fears that'll get people to go see it. But I don't, I think he, he's just... He's just really nihilistic <laughs> in this movie. Yeah. It doesn't have a. It doesn't take a stance. <laughs> the stance <laughs> is just that, like everybody is fucked. It's interesting you bring that up because that's kind of a good way to jump over into another '70s era Carpenter LA movie. Someone's Watching Me, which was written for film, eventually released on television, definitely has some very late 70s television soft fades between sequences, mm -hmm. but also has a lot of the aggressive bite, especially, I mean, this is, I would say this is a far less politically ambiguous film, yeah, but it has a lot of that same nihilistic bite. No, Steve. <laughs> At the tone, the time will be eight forty two. Exactly. No date, but at least you know what time it is. Can't take it, huh? Too bad. 
because in depicting Lauren Hutton as a woman who's being harassed by a stalker in a nearby building and everybody else who she knows at work, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll loop back around to that in a second, but like for everybody who, um, she tells she is the agent of her own salvation because everyone else she meets, i.e. every man she meets over the course of the film's 90 minutes is pretty much for lack of more eloquent phrasing, fuck all useless. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, her, the boyfriend ends up being useful because he's well-connected, which is a cynical point, I suppose. That's a cynical way of looking at it. Get you a man who knows people at the police department. Um, I think this is... I had not seen this movie before, and I think it is very unambiguously feminist. It is a lot about like something that comes up a lot in feminist art because I think it's like a common experience is just like not being believed no one believing you like you tell it telling people that like something bad is happening or something bad has happened and no one believes you that's something that you that you see a lot in horror action or I guess what'd you call this a crime thriller uh, a thrill. I'd say this is a thriller. Yes. Yeah. yeah. If, I would say if we, if we want to, I mean, if we want to get into, get into debate of genre and subgenre, I would put this in the thriller section of the video store <laughs> or the made for TV section. Yeah, but um, I thought that this film had a pretty. I was pleasantly surprised by how strong the feminist viewpoint was. But like, she's telling the truth, but no one wants to believe her. Well, one thing about uh, someone's watching me, I noticed is that in, it's similar to Halloween, not only in a way that. So this was shot for Halloween, just before he started making Halloween. And you can kind of see him crib a lot of his own shots and a lot of the tension that he pulls from this one. And it's probably not as visceral in Someone's Watching Me because it's made for television, but also in the way uh, he explores female relationships and kind of treats them very matter-of-factly. Like Lauren Hutton is... She's kind of a sleaze herself mm-hmm. in the way she picks up... Uh, uh, what's his name? David Burney in the bar. You know, like, it's very matter-of-fact. and she's, the, she's just an independent woman that knows and, what she wants. And he, the way she becomes uh, friends with uh, Adrian Barbeau's character, mm-hmm. who uh, is implied, you know, not implied, it's straight no, say, v- matter of fact, lesb- yeah. She's a lesbian, and they're really not made anything else of other than that. And I think you see that in Halloween, and it's interesting because a lot of the credit for the female relationships in Halloween goes to Deborah Hill, which I believe is warranted, but it seems like Carpenter, if he didn't know how to write female characters, he is certainly had wanted to make the attempt to. Yeah, I think he was probably just, he was open, you know what I mean? He he was open to Deborah Hill's ideas, and you can see that because in, in this movie, I think you can see that he is sympathetic to like the female viewpoint. Well, and I think what's fascinating is to your point about how, you know, a lot of this is very common experience, unfortunately. A lot of what it really surprised me, I had also not seen this film coming into this series, was how many facets of that one experience's terror he's able to hit on mm. from the indifferent policing that's also couched in sort of blame and suspicion of the accuser to the way in which even when she finds active evidence that she's being watched, again, she's disbelieved. 
to the fact that going back to those early scenes in the film, it's predicated on this idea that, you know, she's attuned to the constant harassments and microaggressions of the larger world long before this specific incident with the peeping Tom begins. Right. And that is still very, very relevant. People saying like, yeah, well, where's your evidence? And then when you show the evidence, they still don't believe it. And I think that a, lot of, a lot of that goes back to Car- Carpenter uh, and his activist past and being, you know, in Southern California throughout the late 60s and early early 70s that he probably hung out with, uh, you know, radicals and women who were avidly against opposed to this. Yeah, kind well, of stuff. I don't think there were specific laws against stalking back then. I think it wasn't until the 80s that there were actually laws on the books. So that makes us, you know, very forward thinking in that way. Yeah. When, and that's kind of mortifying, especially when you put it against the whole idea of, you know, the. it's interesting, Mike, that you mentioned, you know, like Assault on Precinct 13 opening on these wide open vistas of L.A. before getting smaller and smaller and smaller almost in like this closed Western kind of way here you get something that's very Hitchcock, you know, like the voyeuristic gaze. Oh yeah. I mean, this is, this is his rear window. If there is one, there is more than a little debt to rear window present (laughs) here, but it's very interesting how he kind of appropriates that for, you know, this glistening sunlit wide open space and really minds the terror of LA isolation and anonymity in a really interesting way. I think, and I think, and we'll definitely touch on this later in the episode, but I think John Carpenter really loves Los Angeles. And you can tell in the way that he shoots it sometimes, particularly in this one and in Assault on Precinct 13. He can really make uh, LA, which I wouldn't necessarily call a beautiful city, he can make it look beautiful. <laughs> yeah, but he always, and we talked about this a little bit last week with They Live, like even when he's framing it beautifully and he's getting these really interesting lines and compositions. There's always something very concrete. There's always something kind of desolate, no matter how much sunlight there is in any given scene. Right. Absolutely. Uh, May I make a correction earlier? The first stalking law in the United States was in California, and it was passed in 1990. That's horrifying. (laughs) Yeah, after several high-profile murders of actresses by stalkers in the 80s. Well, shit, even in the movie, they kind of make it like it wasn't the boyfriend, the other guy who works in the... uh... The television studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it was just, matter of fact, this guy's going to come in and put the moves on you, and he's not going to let up until he gets to take you out. Yep. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's it's treated with, you know, the proper scorn, but also kind of the eye roll that goes with, you know, working in any environment where that's mollycoddled, which, you know, I'm really glad that since the late 1970s, we've taken such great strides <laughs> as a culture to really kind of climb out of that particular well. <laughs> But the other thing that I think is really interesting is just how, you know, again, this is very much Carpenter doing rear window in a couple aspects, but the way in which he kind of subverts the gaze, particularly in the grand finale, when Lauren Hutton realizes that the only way to stop him is not only to do it herself, more or less, but also that nothing frightens a man more than having scopophilia turn back around on him is a really interesting way to send that out. Mm -hmm. That kind of like one of the primal male terrors of the era was having the pendulum of perversion swung back the opposite way. 
I can't argue with that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, and and it also goes along with like the main theme of it that I think makes it go into this John Carpenter versus the man category, which is that she has to take it into her own hands. And Lauren Hutton, you can kind of see that she's, again, back to the Halloween thing, is very much kind of a uh, blueprint for Laurie Strode. Uh, The way she kind of talks to herself, which is kind of silly, Mm -hmm. and also that she... um, I mean, well, I guess we're going to talk about it. Like, she throws the guy over the balcony. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there was a one. Uh, there We watched an interview with Lauren Hutton. I believe I believe it was. No, it was Adrian Barbeau. Barbeau, yeah. Uh, where they talked about how Lauren Hutton was really into the part because she really wanted to stand out. She, you know, she wasn't considered a serious actress. And she wanted to, you know, do this meaty role. And she actually, that she's actually hanging off the side of a high rise there at the end. That's <laughs> terrifying, especially when you consider that like one leg bent out the window dangle <laughs> she's doing for most of that yeah. shot. Yeah, no, the overhead shot from the roof—that's not a stunt double. I mean, you can see her face, so you know it's not a stunt. But I more figured it was matte painted or something of that nature, no. just for the sheer height of it. That's outstanding. On the interview, they said they she she was like, "No, let's do it, let's do it." She was like, "Really, she really wanted to do something serious." The proto Tom Cruise of her <laughs> own time. Um, I have a, a little bit of a question about this film. Do you guys know when did answering machines become common? I'm going to say the early 80s. They weren't common when this movie was made, clearly. No. Because yeah. they would, it's, because if answering machines were a thing when this movie was made, it'd be like how now every single horror movie has to have a throwaway line about like, oh, my phone doesn't work out here. Like, you, you have to account for it. I'm going to say yeah. answering machines must have been in vogue about 1984 when the replacements recorded answering machines. <laughs> That's what I was thinking, too. I was like, well, they they must have been common by the time the replacements album came out because those guys were poor. <laughs> <laughs> well, but again, like it. And that's interesting because it's kind of at the very tail end of that time alongside Halloween where you could do a modern day movie or close to modern day that still had a certain old fashioned timelessness to it because 80s technology would change a lot of horror storytelling within a pretty short period of time right after this. I mean, think of how many 80s horror movies to one end or another are predicated on like a CB radio being like common in like every (laughs) truck and car, things like that, you know. How many things are built on like, you know, someone getting their wires cut and how that fell out of vogue before long. This is like one of the final, you know, stretches of Hollywood filmmaking where you can kind of, you know, open open up and manipulate the way you can use tech to do your story. Down to the fact that the pervert in this film is still doing real to real tape recording. <laughs> but a lot of the technolo- other technology he was using was pretty high tech, and I yeah. want I I didn't get to do any research on this, but I was wondering how much of that was actually authentic for the time, like the little transmitter that he got in her house. Oh, the, from a spy catalog. Yeah, yeah, I. <laughs> That's something I think is really interesting about this film. I think there there's a little bit of an element of techno paranoia in it and like paranoia about surveillance that is sort of like a old school kind of leftist radical viewpoint that died out in the 90s, I think. People aren't so concerned about being watched anymore. No, everybody's got an Alexa in their house. Right. Yeah, well, and I think it's really interesting, too, that this is essentially like a long-form examination of what bugging the home can do to the individual. So that's really interesting because the whole idea is that nothing she can do will overcome this threat 
until she discovers the bug and finally like reclaims the power for herself. And that's actually really interesting when you kind of contextualize this as a post-Nixonian thing, too, to take such a cynical perspective about surveillance right after everyone was kind of opening their arms to it because, it, you know, it, it, fell, <laughs> it fell to despot. Mm-hmm. But as with any technology, it's only as good or as evil as the people holding it. Well, I think as liberal as I think as I believe John Carpenter to be, and I think we'll get into this a little bit more with uh, when we touch on Escape from L.A., I think he also has some serious libertarian leanings in that um, his fear of uh, what we were just talking surveillance and uh, being spied on. And, uh, and people getting in his business. Yeah, people getting in his business, which, again, we'll touch on is with Escape from L.A. Yeah, and it's very much like the like the absolute autonomy of the individual and a lot of mm-hmm. ideas about, like, again, like monitoring and being followed. And on that same tack, that's a good way to jump into the escalating paranoia of the escape movies. Actually, can I, well, since we were on the talking on the subject of how pleasantly surprised I are by how woke this movie is, I wrote down one line, which I was just like, wow, I cannot believe that was in a TV movie from 1978. Uh, At one point, a character says, rape is when a man consciously keeps a woman in fear. I was like, wow, 1978. Good job, John Carpenter. Yeah, that really popped out to me because a lot of the movie's political leanings, even in just like the implicit ways like that, are very ahead of the time. I mean, especially... Yeah, I thought this movie was way ahead of its time. Shit, this same year you have Animal House, where a rape scene is played for comedy. These were probably in the world within a few months of one another, which really just kind of, you know, puts the point into relief. You know, this would be, that would be a radical line of dialogue for a film now, as I consider it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and this was 12 years before like stalking was even considered serious enough to be a crime. You know, it'd be like, oh, it's a compliment. But this, but this movie takes it seriously as like an attack on like her, like bodily autonomy on her life. Well, and again, going back to that opening, it sort of sees it as like going even further, like the inevitable end game of like what we consider, you know, the more benign affronts, the office mm-hmm. harassment, the leering, the on the street, the street harassment, things like that. It, it kind of builds that as, you know, the inevitable progression into something like the stalker. Mm-hmm. Who uh, I, I was going to say, and then Uncle Leo is in this. too. <laughs> yes. I don't know you guys notice Uncle Leo? <laughs> I did. <laughs> this movie has everything. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it actually it does. Um, it does harken back to an era of film that I love very dearly, in which every single supporting role was filled out by an interesting character actor, and they oh, yeah. all looked like character actors. God bless yeah, those Unc- days. Were Uncle Leo was probably like twenty five in this movie. <laughs> he- and- that and guy he was born looking and he looks 30. like he, he looks like he's 50. <laughs> but but then he has that thing where you like plateau at 50 55 for like decades. So you know maybe that's a blessing who's to say. <laughs> Burt Young the same way. I think he was 30 when he was in Rocky and he looks like he's 70. Oh, I, I can't that blows my mind every single time. Now, he, oh, it was he also always like, looks like it's like what happened to get you there. <laughs> I think he just always looked some people are born looking 30 and then you know they're 50 by the time they're 20. <laughs> the 70s were also a golden age for uh, horror uh, made-for-TV movies, too. It just fit, slides right into, I think what is worth noting, like Gargoyles and uh, Don't Go to Sleep, which is one of my favorites, Trilogy of Terror. Well, and I mean, Carpenter's very much from that background, and he did, like, 
a fair deal of TV work, especially early on before like moving into the studio system by the 80s. And jumping forward into the 80s, we're going to have Escape from New York in 81, which, you know, if the films we've touched upon so far have, you know, chosen their own interesting ways to elusively engage with crime and policing and political control in America, here is perhaps one of the least subtle American films ever made (laughs) to make very clear a lot of Carpenter's feelings on the topic. S.D. Pliskin, American, Lieutenant, Special Forces Unit, Black Light. Two Purple Hearts, Leningrad and Siberia. Youngest man to be decorated by the President. He robbed the Federal Reserve Depository. Life sentence, New York Maximum Security Penitentiary. I'm ready to kick your ass out of the world, war hero. Down to opening in a prison where, as is alluded to in New York and eventually made visually explicit in L.A. 15 years later, you can choose to be executed or you can be dumped into Manhattan, which is now a walled-off prison city for the criminal worst of the worst. Can I be honest? Neither of them seem that bad, really. I mean, it's probably better to live there than in, like, whatever, like, Handmaid's Tale religious dystopia is going on everywhere well, that, else. That's kind of the point. I think that's kind of, that's made in Escape from L.A. more so than New York. But, yeah, New York's the same thing. You go do whatever you want. Yeah, you can do whatever you want. The Duke of New York was running a show. Who knows? What do you, I mean, what do you think the Duke of New York was doing, you know, when he what is, wasn't? In, uh, do you really think the Duke of New York is going to, like, you know, go get a straight job and go to church on Sundays? Hell no, he doesn't want to do that. Yeah, no, absolutely not. And, like, the Duke of New York can also, like, be the Duke of New York rolling around with his chandelier Cadillac. That sounds like the best Mad Max world to inhabit, all things considered. <laughs> but, yeah, I think one of the really, in- like, the thing I want to start with with Escape from New York is just how much is drawn out incidentally because in revisiting that's the thing that really struck me is in the tradition of great science fiction which this is very much as much as an action movie this is dystopian sci-fi but a lot of it is drawn out elusively in passing dialogue you know stake pliskin's a war hero at no point will the film bother to tell you why or what he did you know, you know the Duke is the Duke of New York because he's Isaac fucking Hayes in his chandelier Cadillac. Again, that's about all you need. And the film doesn't really belabor itself with exposition, but somehow fleshes out so, so much of this world in this amazing way. Yeah, I'm a fan of this style of exposition. I don't like it when too much is laid out in dialogue. It feels very pandering to me. I think it's just a credit to... Who this was Carpenter and uh, Nick Castle wrote this one, yeah. I think it's and I think it's, I mean, I'm sure Castle has a lot to do with it. Castle has a lot to do with the swagger, I think, that comes with Escape from New York. Um, but Carpenter, it's all leanness for him, it's all western, and that's what it comes from. Mm-hmm. It's all Rio Bravo, El Dorado, any of the movies where you know Dean Martin played the drunk, yeah, absolutely. He's riding in on a horse into like a lawless frontier town, absolutely. and that's all you need to know. Yeah, down to the fact there's a couple points where you have, you know, Snake Plissken opposing people on a long street with debris or um, yeah. newspapers blowing by as the Random tumbleweeds. fires. Yeah. <laughs> no, there is, um, I'm glad you brought up uh, Rio Bravo especially because, you know, there's a lot of that influence in um, Assault on Precinct 13, but you really see it here especially with Snake Plissken, the lone gunman. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I 
I finally caught up with Rio Bravo, and because I heard comparisons to Assault on Precinct Thirteen for so many years, and like you said earlier, Assault on Precinct Thirteen is much more Night of the Living Dead than Rio Bravo. There's a lot of archetypes that are taken from you know westerns in general, and obviously, I mean, John Carpenter is in love with Rio Bravo. There's a reference to Rio Taco, the 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 program that they wanted a program in Someone's Watching Me, where a, a Mexican dude would review movies. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And, John Carpenter edited Assault on Precinct 13 under the name John T. Chance, I believe, which was John Wayne's name in Rio Bravo. But um, I definitely think you, this is, for as much as John Carpenter gets called the master of horror, I think I like his action stuff better. I think he's more, not more comfortable, but I think he's, I think I just like his action movies overall better. Because I think he has a real knack for it because of his love of the Western. Which is really the original action movie. Uh, yeah. I, well, I was gonna say I think his really like clean, no bullshit, no extra. His really economical style translates really well to action movies, specifically ones that are kind of like takes on westerns, like you were saying. Well, and with Precinct 13 and with this as well, there's this kind of relentless sense of momentum that he gets out of that setting where, you know, some Westerns, even a lot of the great action-packed ones of your would, like, pause to be meditative and the things that were fashionable in films of the time. There is something almost kind of ruthless about the efficiency of some of his action filmmaking. No, there's a lot of nihilism. I think more so than your classic westerns. Your classic western, even if the good guy rode off into the sunset, even if he left the girl behind, like it was after, like he he did good for the sake of doing good. It felt like, and you really don't get that sense out of Snake Plissken. No, I mean Snake Plissken is decidedly an antihero in some pretty grisly ways. I mean, there's a lot of things in the margins of the film that Snake just sort of sees and moves on from that you absolutely, I would argue, couldn't pull off now because. What we expect of a modern hero, even a modern anti-hero in the Snake Plissken vein, is very different than what you could get away with 30-odd years ago. I think the, the the ticking time bomb aspect of the movie helps uh, helps that and helps move it along. It helps explain that. And it, it I mean, obviously, it helps move the movie along. It gives it, it gives it that sense of urgency that you were talking about. Yeah, and I mean, the urgency sort of is conveyed across the board with this movie. That's There's a tonal consistency across every facet of the filmmaking that I think is very key to why it works so well and why a movie that on its face is so dramatically simple in logline form has the legacy it does. It's because... The pulse of the score, which we'll talk a little more about later, fits the pulse of the editorial rhythm, which fits the pulse of the drama, which fits even kind of the pulse of a lot of the action sequences, which sort of have just this steady, consistent brutality in them instead of having a lot of flesh. Like, Snake Plissken takes a lot of shots. Snake Plissken gets his ass beat a lot of this movie, which is what's kind of great about it. There's there's no Superman posturing to it. Snake is very, he's the same relentless force as a lot of what's around him. Yeah, John Carpenter's really into just mindless drive. And it's it's the good guy version of Michael Myers. It's like, you know, like he doesn't need, it's very simple and very ruthless. There's not a lot of why in John Carpenter. There's a lot of just cause. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's you get a reason you don't get a ton in the way of motive, backstory, what have you. You get reasons, right? Snake's only in there because he has to save his ass. That's the only reason he's in New York right now. Yeah, 
I'm what you were saying about everything being kind of consistent in this movie, I think is really interesting because I was trying to describe, like, figure out a way to put it into words what the tone of it is. And I was having kind of a hard time, like, well, describing it's, it. It's not silly, like, no, Escape from New York or Escape from LA, rather. I mean, it's really not tense. It's not like too, Halloween. It's not too serious either, though, is the thing. That's the thing. It kind of lands in, like, I would argue, like, a mildly less serious Mad Max kind of space. Because aesthetically, it reminds me a lot of what that series would turn into with Road Warrior and Beyond Thunderdome. And it's very much of a piece, again, going back to talking about Walter Hill and things like that. This is very much another movie built out of, like, the decaying urban spaces of the American 80s. To kind of a weird extent, because this was even shot in East St. Louis to get the proper urban downturn look, which is always like a strange look for filmmaking. Happens a lot with East St. Louis, happens a lot with Detroit, even more so during this time for both. They needed to find somewhere that looked worse than New York in the, in the early 80s. <laughs> and they found it in East St. Louis. No, it's it's very interesting, though, because to that point about the tone, there is particularity to the tone. But I think, again, it's playing within, to sort of bring this around to everything we've been discussing about the film, it's playing within so many different genres simultaneously and in a way that feels almost effortless that it is kind of hard down and hard to nail down what it's doing. But also what it's doing is a style aesthetically, aurally, whatever people have been biting for decades. Right. It's really distinct, but it's also really hard to like nail down into one or two words. Right, because, I mean, I guess, thinking about it, it is a Western. I mean, that is what it is. It's it's the searchers. Yeah. It's him going to find, you know, the president. That's it. That's all there is to it. And that's it, right. But and it's, it, not in, it's not set in the West at all. Right, and, like, you know, some of the costumes and the settings, like, if they weren't handled correctly, it could have looked really, really goofy and kind of cheap. It would have looked like every Italian uh, Mad Max ripoff. Exactly. Off. Right. It would have looked like 1980 The Bronx Warriors if he hadn't. But there's something about the way he does it where it doesn't seem goofy. Well, and I think a lot of that is just the idea that, you know, the movie takes, going back again, the movie takes itself just seriously enough. It's never glowering in the way that especially a lot of, like, post-2000 action movies tend to glower it's never quite that, but this is still a dead serious film. And it's, uh, looking at a lot of uh, Carpenter Prickley's earlier stuff, even up to They Live, like he does take it dead serious. I mean, you really don't get to see him be real silly probably till about, what, Memoirs of Invisible Man? Well, Memoirs of Invisible Man, or even we'll get to Escape from L.A., which is its yeah. own thing. <laughs> I mean, Starman, even Starman, for not being a horror movie or an action movie or anything, is is still... He handles, uh, he, he takes everything that happens in that movie seriously, mm -hmm. as silly as some of it may be. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I feel like that's a good way to cycle. If we're going to talk about the balance between serious and goofy, let's talk goofy and jump ahead 15 years to 1996's Escape from L.A., which was to be the second in an ideal Escape threequel. Because Kurt Russell liked playing Snake Plissken so much that not only did he insist on coming back for L.A., and even as a writing credit, his only writing credit on the film, but Ghosts of Mars, which we on, touched on a couple weeks back, was supposed to be the third escape movie, Escape from Earth. 
dummy snake. So not Just a big time now, mister. Start feeling better quick, man, because you ain't got time to get out of here. This is gonna be some kind of ride. Some kind of pitch ride. Just go. Come on. Pitch. As the escape movies go, if we're taking those two films as a spectrum, this is much closer to the Ghosts of Mars end than it is to the New York end. Oh my god, John Carpenter, like, that CGI couldn't have looked good at the time. I disagree on the opening, though. I think the CGI of the opening earthquake... Oh, I don't even mean the earthquake. ...holds up pretty... I, I was watching it when I started going, yeah, the CGI holds up pretty well here. And then, then the surfing... <laughs> the surfing that's that's what i was thinking of i don't think it looks so goofy just knowing but i don't think he meant it that way knowing what i know about john carpenter i don't think he cared at that point <laughs> i think i think he saw an opportunity to work with his buddy kurt russell again yeah and deborah hill again and to uh, yeah let's put uh peter fonda on a surfboard <laughs> Let's do whatever we yeah. want to do. So Bruce Campbell with that makeup on. Yeah. yeah. A couple weeks ago, um, myself and my colleague Mike Rothman had the chance to talk to him for about a half an hour, Carpenter. And one of the things that I forgot to ask that I wish I would have more than anything was in an interview around the time of this film's release, he attested that he was happier with it than New York. And I would really love to know where that assessment stands a couple decades removed because, you know, here on Filmography, we don't, you know, not everything we discuss is going to be top shelf. But this movie is so surreally haphazard from scene to scene that it being a sequel to escape from new york is almost kind of mind-boggling but i don't think that's too far off because like katie said it's hard to pin down the tone of escape from new york and it's the same it was in a way it's the same thing to do with escape from la where things just kind of happen and there's mm -hmm. no rhyme or reason as we said there's not a lot of why in a john carpenter movie there's a lot of just cause and i think it's also a reaction to the two big the Two big things that happened in the '90s, as far as you know, action movies go, like Bruckheimer and Simpson, their output, uh -huh. where it was very much, let's get a bunch of like A-list actors together and do this silly action movie, and Quentin Tarantino, yeah, which I think there's a sense of that in, particularly in his casting of people like Pam Greer and Steve Buscemi. Yeah, I and there's some some surf music in it also. Yeah, God, I. I, I don't want to just spend 15 mil minutes yelling about the surfing, and it is really difficult, it's, to be honest. It's, so I think, to that point, it's interesting to then look at, if these movies are doing, you know, purely on paper, similar things, why is Escape from New York a classic and Escape from L.A. absolutely goddamn ridiculous? I would put a lot of the blame on the special effects. I I think Mike has a really great point, but by that point, Carpenter was just like, "Yeah, whatever is easiest, man. I don't want to. I don't want to like set all this up and have to like deal with it and direct it." So he, you know, he opted have, for CGI. <laughs> he, he wanted to. Do, he wanted to have fun on this one. I mean, if you look at it, it's a beat for beat remake. Of Escape from New York. Yeah. The same way Ghostbusters 2, and I'm always amazed when people don't believe me when I say this. Watch Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2 side by side. The beats are the same. The beats yeah. are exactly the same, which is fine, because I like both of them. And the same way, I I was really excited. There's nothing wrong with that. I really. was really excited when Escape from L.A. was coming out. I and was I was going to ask you. Oh, yeah. I saw it at the show. 
We saw it at the show. We went on Friday afternoon when it opened. We were jazzed up for it, and we absolutely loved it. Me and my 16-year-old friends. Uh, we just couldn't. We, we had just rented the Laserdisc of Escape from New York about a couple weeks before, and we loved it. I mean, and that's who it's aimed for. It's, aimed, it's a movie for teenagers, I think. And it was also because I think Carpenter really wanted to talk about the family values movement yes. that was so prevalent in the 90s because of Dan Quayle. And even, I mean, we got we can pin this on the Democrats, too, with uh, Tipper Gore and the... Uh, the- yeah, parents. The, the, the PMRC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I the think it was the reason there's parental advisory because I think yeah. you, you definitely see that libertarian thread come through here. Where you know, do you really want to live in the? Do you want to live in L.A. in the prison, or do you want to live on the outside where it's a theocracy and you can't have? Red it's a meat prison of its own, and you can't have a cigarette. Yeah. yeah. I got to say, like, I love that aspect of this movie. I love the theocracy bit. I love that he's taking the piss out of the religious right a little bit. I think the first, like, 15 minutes of Escape from L.A. are great. The whole setup when they're, like, taking him through the bunker. And like you mentioned earlier, where they're just, like, executing people in electric chairs along the wall. It's like Escape from New York, but bigger and crazier. And that's really, really fun. And But, like, yeah. It just kind of falls apart. So I think the interesting thing, if we're talking about this side-by-side comparison and how similar, again, in theory, these films are, devil's in the details, as it usually is. You know, instead of Ernest Borgnine, you get Steve Buscemi's tour bus guide, mm-hmm. who is somehow a bigger cartoon than Ernest Borgnine is yeah. Cabby. Maps to the stars, Eddie. Absolutely. You get... um Instead of Kurt Russell getting in a boxing match to the death, he gets into a basketball competition. You know that was all Carpenter. <laughs> he loves basketball, <laughs> he right? He loves basketball. Yeah. Um, that's a that's a really great point. And actually, a movie that I that I would compare Escape from L.A. to. Uh, it's I think the other movie's a little better. Don't jump down my throat, but I would compare it to Starship Troopers in the sense that the kind of side the stuff that is just kind of detail and world building that isn't part of the main plot is the best stuff in the movie. Like when he makes a casual reference in somebody makes a casual reference in escape from LA to new Vegas, Thailand. What a great detail. There is still a lot of great world building in this. I will say, especially like, It makes literal, like, blunt force literal a lot of things that Escape from New York sort of leaves to the side or leaves you to pick Mm -hmm. up, which is kind of an irritant, but also there is so much of it. It's a lot like uh, Starship Troopers, I think. Uh, I think that um, Verhoeven and Carpenter have similar sensibilities when it comes to that sort of, like, satirical dystopian humor. And I think Carpenter just said to himself, well, there's really nothing else you can do with an escape movie. Like, I think one of the reasons, like you're saying, why is the uh, why is the original one held as a classic and Escape from L.A. not so much? Even though I think some people do hold it as a classic, particularly if you saw it when you were the right age. Something about movies from that era, the late 70s, early 80s, particularly for people our age, it feels like it's from another world um, in that we don't remember when it was coming out. We just kind of remember hearing people talk about it and right. tracking it down like it was some sort of like holy grail. And then Escape from L.A., like, we went to the theater to see it. So it's... There's not this weird kind of, I don't know, there's not, not that Escape from New York, I would not call it transgressive, but you almost know more that it's just a movie. I don't know. So looping back around for a second to your point about, you know, Bruckheimer and Tarantino being the action fashions of the era, 
this, like, I made the reference when we were discussing Ghosts of Mars a while ago to that being, like, the most canon films-looking movie of the early 2000s, <laughs> but Escape from L.A. a couple years earlier has a very similar vibe, especially when you put it up against its contemporaries, which in 96 were, like, Independence Day and Twister and these cutting-edge effects extravaganzas, and then you have this movie that's, like, almost defiantly kind of amateur-looking and cartoony. I can't believe a studio. I don't know. Was Escape from New York that big of a hit to warrant a sequel 16 years later? And who put that? That was Paramount. Well, it, it was. And 50 mil was dumped into this. I was what? Like, like I, was, and Carpenter, he hadn't had a hit for a while what was, before that. What was up with Kurt Across, Russell around that time? Uh, I don't even know what Kurt Russell was doing. He was doing a lot of stuff like breakdown and a lot of like studio low budget genre movies. Oh, he's an executive decision. Yeah, like that same year, probably. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. It's 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 kind of it's kind of a weird thing. Like I don't know what possessed everybody to make another escape movie, especially nineteen ninety six. Especially when again, like yeah, there's something. I think there's definitely something kitsch about Escape from L.A. Even more than the first with its miniature World Trade Center and all of that. Like, there's something distinctly more kitsch. Long before Peter Fonda on the surfboard. <laughs> yeah, I think John Carpenter probably took it less seriously when he, on the set. I mean, you gotta figure, he was 16 years older, too. So, how old was it he made Escape from New York? Let's say, 20? Escape from New York? Mm. Yeah. That had... No, he had to be... Well, no, he made Halloween before that. He'd be in his 30s. By the so, time. if it is 81, he would be... 30 something probably he's 70 now so, so in 96 he would have been 48 yeah so yeah john carpenter's almost 50 years old making escape from la like he's not the same firebrand that he was when he made escape from new york so maybe that's part of what it is and also he didn't have a lot of the same team like yeah he had deborah hill but he didn't have dean cundy with him uh i don't know if this was Alan Ga- Howarth wasn't with him on this one either, I don't think. This was Gary B. Kibb shooting, who did a lot of his latter day pictures. He was he was second half Dean Cundy. He did because I think he did They Live. I want to say he did Prince of Darkness. And in general, you get like this sense, in a weird way, this might be the John Carpenter version of a mid-late 90s studio action vehicle. Maybe. As ridiculous as it is. I mean, the can- the canon can comparison is interesting because it is certainly overstuffed there is a lot in this movie well and it's almost to that tarantino point it it almost changes genres tones aesthetics by the scene because there's definitely a disconnect between you know you know some of the nightmarish street photography that Mm -hmm. deliberately exist deliberately exists to invoke escape from new york and then some of these fanciful set pieces once again basketball contest well, some of the fanciful set pieces, I think that this movie is in Thor Ragnarok's DNA. I think that that there is a little bit of escape from L.A. in that movie. Just in like the big, silly set piece kind of way. And almost kind of that anything goes chaos from scene mm-hmm. to scene. Yeah. And I think it would make an excellent double feature with From Dusk Till Dawn. I think they have a lot in common and they're from the same era. And I think it's also just John Carpenter, as we were talking about him, him in L.A. earlier, I think it's his love letter to L.A., including basketball. <laughs> he loves the Lakers. <laughs> and surfing, 
Which is a big part of LA. I will actually pop in the Warriors, and I only know this because him and I had several minutes of conversation about how Golden State's doing. So, (laughs) oh, he's a Warriors fan now. Warriors fan now. Oh, everybody likes a winner. A true nihilist. (laughs) He likes winners. Well, but I think, especially with it being a love letter at L.A., that can kind of steer us a little bit into our second half discussion where we can talk a little more about the ways in which he goes about doing that. With the novel coronavirus pandemic escalating in the U.S., Roe, the parent company of Roman, is offering free telehealth services for people seeking guidance and information on COVID-19. Their free online assessment is based on guidelines from the CDC and the World Health Organization and can help determine if you are at risk. If appropriate, Roe will connect you with a medical provider for a free consultation. Visit roco slash coronavirus on your phone or laptop to complete a free online assessment. That's roco slash coronavirus. And if we're jumping into a discussion about, you know, the looks of everything, I guess we can stay on Escape from L.A. for a minute because the look of L.A. and this kind of loops around a lot of the discussion that we've been having so far. But the look of L.A. is alternating between distinct green screen CGI ridiculous and like these incredible flights of design fancy very occasionally that sort of cut through the rest of the movie. Yeah, uh, well, like I said, I'm a big fan of the the opening sequence in the bunker, you know, where they lay out the whole thing about how it's a religious, you know, what's it called? A theocracy, that's what it's called. It's taken over, and then the, they're, you know, leading him through the hallways of the bunker and everything. I, I love that, and I love, I really like the parts that are just kind of heightening the escape from New York aesthetic. For instance, the costumes in this are crazier, which I appreciate. I think that's very much L.A. too. Yeah. There's probably some sort of commentary on the theatricalness of uh, Los Angeles. Yeah. Well, and it kind of, you know, it's a bit of a stretch, but one of the movies I kept thinking about it mostly because it's a movie I like wean into conversations regularly is Southland Tales in terms of its whole vision of, you know, an L.A. given over to its most ridiculous extreme impulses in mm-hmm. so many different directions, to your point that you get this surrealist world just by dint of everyone living there kind of going for it. That's probably uh, Carpenter making a commentary in L.A., though, just how bonkers everybody is already is there. I mean, the Surgeon General of yeah. Los Angeles, I mean, that's... I think that's there's, the most... There's nothing uh, subtle about yeah. that. Yeah, you know, I think when that's a... the most explicit piece of, like commentary on LA. Yeah, when Bruce Campbell shows up to do Brazil for five minutes in the middle of the movie. <laughs> yeah. That no, but, good. but there is like, especially in the look of it, like there's and we'll talk about this in at least a couple of the movies, there's this weird feeling of how even when the sun's out, you're trapped. And he messes around with that in a lot of his films, even in Halloween, like the violation of safety, even in the daytime, that famous image where you see Michael peering out from behind the shrubs in the dead of day, where the horror of that is, you know, ostensibly the daytime is where you are safe. And he does some interesting things throughout Escape from L.A. with that, but also a lot of it looks like it's shot on like the same three sets at night. Mm -hmm. So it probably was shot on the same three sets at night. That's just it. And a lot of that, uh, the backgrounds, be it the Magic Kingdom where they are at the end or the Capitol Records, Records building, that's all CGI or green screen. I guess Carpenter's 
economy had to come in somewhere. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, I mean, as far as look, if there's not something entirely cohesive about all of Escape from L.A., because, again, it's kind of freewheeling, I feel like New York has a much more consistent look and vibe visually. I, again, like, one of the things that really miffed me about L.A. is how undisciplined the editing is. It And this would become a Carpenter problem in a lot of his late movies. We talked about this with Ghost of Mars, too, but... There are scenes that seem to cut off early. There are sequences of really haphazard assembly just from scene to scene. And yet, in if you go back to New York, there's a couple of weird beats in that same way, but it's much cleaner in that respect. And I think at least there, too, if we're talking about an aesthetic of, like, total urban dark, it's a lot more straightforward start to finish. Though, again, I suppose you do have those flourishes, specifically the theater he winds up in early in the film. You do have those, like, brief fits of, you know, something a little more outrageous. I will guess that maybe it has to do with his script writing and knowing what his limitations were. He probably thought he could push it a lot harder by the time Escape from L.A. came around as to what he could put in there because of his budget, because of his name. Yeah. Um, Rather than worth Escape from New York, it's kind of like, well, this is all we can do, so... If this was in the script, we're not even going to shoot it. We're not even going to attempt to shoot it. I think a lot of great directors work better with limitations, and I, maybe Carpenter is one of them. Well, I mean, if you if you look at his trajectory from like eighty Studio Carpenter to ninety Studio Carpenter, when the budgets in the latter were arguably higher, that kind of speaks directly to your point. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of directors do better when they have somebody, whether it's a extra, whether it's literally a producer like Dino De Laurentiis, you know, telling David Lynch this movie's two hours and that's that, or whether it's you know budget with Carpenter, his lower budget work tends to be more disciplined. In the case of New York, one thing I think is really interesting, too, is that he he makes it so visually interesting, even though he's dealing with an incredibly muted palette, almost for the as outside of the bunker sequences that bookend the film for almost the entirety of it. You're working in kind of this dark blue, black, brown, or brown gunmetal palette that is now like all the rage in modern action movies, much to their detriment, but is made really engaging here. I do love it in Escape from New York. Maybe it's because it's one of the first movies to look like that, so it it is distinct. Versus, I think that gunmetal palette that you're talking about that plagues a lot of the Marvel movies is just insufferable. Sometimes. Yeah, I don't think it's nearly as pronounced in Escape from New York. I think it's not an in-camera effect in Escape from New York as much as it is in the Marvel. Yeah, I was going to say... That's like post-production stuff in the Marvel. I was going to say, we couldn't, like, oversaturate every single frame of exactly. a film at this point in production yet. And I think, well, why it works probably with something like Escape from New York is that he fills it up with so many interesting characters and just weird little flourishes, like the, the plane crashed in the middle of uh, New York, uh, the boxing ring... Um, What's his name? Romero, the guy. He was also the White Warlord in uh, in Assault on Precinct 13. The guy with the spiky hair. Frank Doubleday. Frank Doubleday, yeah. To that point, too, what you were saying earlier about the costume design really factors in there because that adds like a lot of the flourishes to color to what's otherwise a pretty muted palette. Mm-hmm. And kind of shifting gears in terms of muted palettes, I want to jump back over to someone's watching me because, again, that does a lot of really interesting things with, like, L.A. concrete and L.A. light and L.A. openness in particular. Carpenter loves shooting concrete and steel. Yeah. Is, is, and that's something I like about him because 
Yeah, landscapes are cool and all, but like I was born in the city. I like I like concrete. I like buildings. That's I like neon. I like lights. Yeah, I love the shot in this movie. It recurs a couple times that it's taken. It's not quite a fisheye lens, but it's a wide, wide open shot taken from the bottom of a high rise looking up, and then it just pans across, and it and it kind of it distorts it ever so slightly in a way that's really kind of beautiful to look at. And it also reminds me, it's very 1970s TV movie, yeah. too, because it reminds me of like the opening of Trapper, Trapper John, MD, or something <laughs> like that. Well, and especially when you're playing around with like these very rear window images, like one of the things I really love about it is, to me, the scariest shot in the entire film is the one where she's peering through the telescope and sees him looking back. Mm-hmm. It's only for a second. But, and I mean... what. One thing that I really loved watching, especially this and Assault on Precinct 13 back-to-back, as it were, was seeing how in both that pattern that he would really define with Halloween right after this of, you know, a bunch of shots of negative space repeated for the impact of something finally filling that negative space. Yeah, there's a couple shots in in Someone's Watching Me that are pretty much directly also used in Halloween. Like there's a POV shot of someone parting bushes, which is so Halloween. Well, yeah, to your point about perspective shots, I really like that a lot of the time he's assuming, you know, the peeping Tom perspective, but in ways where he's also unfolding the story using that, which is very, very Halloween as well. Like using the perspective of a wordless presence to forward narrative. Sure. Yeah. And, and as we all know, Halloween opens with, you know, an extended POV shot that has a lot of plot and a lot of character in it. Well, and you definitely too, you see, you see that LA like again of clean lines and light, but jumping over then to, to assault on Precinct 13 for a bit, the one thing I really noticed, and again, maybe it was the juxtaposition of watching someone's watching me right after this, but in both, you see a lot of going back again, like especially in the early going, this almost Western photography, like these stark wide images that he kind of uses in someone's watching me for like a sense of ominousness and terror, especially those wide images of that building across the street with window after window after window and perfect symmetry. But in Assault on Precinct 13, what's kind of cool then is how he accomplishes the same thing, but it's these vistas of abandoned buildings. Yeah, um, well, there's two sh- there's two shots in these two movies, two scenes that are pretty similar. And I think that Someone's Watching Me has a stronger sense of place than Assault on Precinct 13 does. Like, like there's a sequence in Someone's Watching Me where Lauren Hunton drives around L.A. and you see... You know, you see different billboards up and you see people walking down the street and you see like buildings in the background and you get it. It's what driving around L.A. is like, you know, it it looks like she's driving around L.A. But whereas at the beginning of Assault on Precinct 13, you have the lieutenant driving the car and he gets his assignment and you just kind of see houses in the background. It could be a lot of different places. And it's probably the point that he was probably trying to make with Assault on Precinct 13, like... Not that someone's watching me is a decidedly L.A. story, although she does work in television, so that would probably be more prone to happen in L.A. Sure. Whereas Assault on Precinct 13 was, yeah, that police station could be the one down the block from your house, which, you know, he also did with Halloween. I mean, it's it's yeah. set in Haddonfield, Illinois, but it's shot in Los Angeles, so it kind of has that out-of-time, out-of-place kind of sensibility to it. 
Yeah, well, and I mean, even the one the one place I was really thinking of, even more than it being fringe Los Angeles, because I think there's really something cool and interesting in that idea of, you know, there's L.A. in the downtown and the familiar neighborhoods of L.A., and then there's fringe L.A., which mm-hmm. is a very, very different L.A. Because fringe L.A., watching it in the early scenes of Assault, was reminding me a lot of um, the outskirts of Austin, Texas as well, yeah. and how once you get outside of, like, some of the hipstery neighborhoods and the fairly small downtown center, a lot of it barely feels like a city, even though it still very much is. Most cities look pretty much the same when you, in the margins, like in the suburban areas of pretty much any, the only thing that you can tell in a suburb is how old it is. You know, like in Chicago, the inner suburbs have a little bit more personality because they're from like the 50s, 60s. But the further you go out, you get into houses that were like McMansions from the 2000s. That looks exactly the same. And the strip malls around there look exactly the same, whether you're in this, you're in Virginia or you're in Ohio or you're in California. They all look the same. Oh, absolutely. And like, give or take, like the length of an average block, it's all kind of out of box. Right. And that's one thing is like Carpenter's really good. And I guess we've danced around this point in every discussion, but it's relevant here, especially. He's very good at taking, you know, unusual perspectives of an urban space. There aren't a lot of huge LA or outside of the corny New York landmarks and escape from New York. There's not a lot of like the typically recognizable tip off signals to situate you in LA. It's usually subtleties. Like there's a highway scene in almost all of this LA films or something like that. But in LA essentially becomes anonymous in a way that filmmakers who deal in one rooted place for most of their career never really do. I think that's, uh, that really speaks to, especially when you're talking about early Carpenter, that he was a director for hire for, you know, in a lot of these early jobs. So the anonymous of it, I think, I think a lot in John Carpenter's movies is kind of reflective of his mood at the time. Like for a work for hire gig, it'll be a little bit anonymous and very efficient. And then like a later bloated studio movie is going to be like, ah, whatever. Cause he just didn't give a shit, you know, like he's definitely the captain of the ship on every movie that he does. And if he cares or not, it's going to show up in the film. Yeah, and I think especially when we're talking about, like, a lot of early-era Carpenter against one particular late-era movie, it's easy for that to get lost in translation a little Mm -hmm. bit. Like, the Carpenter who made the first escape is not the Carpenter who made the second, any more than the Carpenter of Someone's Watching Me is the guy he was by the last couple films of his career. Mm -hmm. And there also started to be more and more substantial of a gap between those, you know, the strong films and the... I do- output. Yeah, I'm always trying to think of like the eloquent phrasings. You know, we on filmography don't want to disparage things out of hand, but you know, we're gonna like some movies more than others, especially with a filmmaker like Carpenter, and that's sort of unavoidable. Well, and before we move on from sight, I just want to kind of steer us into our favorite discussion of the week: the lasting image, which is our favorite sh- single shots from any of the four films. And I'm going to jump through mine kind of quickly because as it turns out, I already mentioned it about 10 minutes ago, but it's the image of the peeping Tom staring back in someone's watching me because it's one, it hits on that prickling back of your neck kind of fear. Like that fear you get, I think very much of the whole diner sequence in Mahalan drive. When I think of that kind of fear where it's this idea 
that the only thing worse than the monster in your imagination is having that fear validated and that instant piercing terror of knowing you should be afraid of the thing you're trying to tell yourself is irrational. And I think very simply in that one image, he hits that note. And I believe there's like a very corny like movie of the week violin sting to go with it. But all the same, just that image of someone staring straight back at you wanting to be found. I don't know. I just I find that like really deep reaching in its way. Mine's also from someone's watching me and I also already mentioned it. I'll just preface by saying that I was really impressed by the way this movie was shot. I just really all around was delighted by the discovery of it. And the shot that I already mentioned is the shot looking, standing on the ground floor of the high rise, looking up at the high rise. The shot repeats a couple times throughout the film. And I just, I like how it's a fresh perspective on something that's kind of, it makes something kind of beautiful, kind of ugly, beautiful. It emphasizes just the, the magnitude of the buildings and the anonymity of it. And in that way, and the way that the building's kind of like hanging down on top of you and it looks like it's going to crush you, it's a very paranoid shot. So that's my choice. Oh, I, I'm going to go with the shot of Frank Doubleday just before he shoots the little girl with the ice cream cone in Assault on Precinct 13. I think it looks great because it's, it's obviously shot at magic hour, or at least in the early morning, so you get this nice reflection of the sun. It's also that it's pure exploitation. Because even before, because the shot of a little girl getting shots, just some blood. Like, it's not very exploitive. It's that sense of, as you're watching it, particularly for the first time, where you're saying, he's not going to shoot the little girl, is he? And then he does. And it's the inciting incident that kind of kicks off Assault on Precinct 13. And it takes a little bit to get there, too. I get, that's a good five, ten minutes into the movie, I think. Maybe even longer. It is, because you get these little character vignettes with everyone who's going to be a major player before that kicks everything off, really. Because the movie pretty much takes off sprinting from the second the little girl's shot and doesn't really let up after that. Yeah, and it's framed framed perfectly the way it's... Almost from the little girl's point of view, because you see it through the two doors of the, the ice cream truck. Yeah, and there is kind of like a nightmare symmetry to that, like kind of like staring down a tunnel, but yeah. made very small in its way. Yeah, Frank really Doubleday's like Frank Doubleday's creepy as it is. <laughs> He's just got a good look. I always do like that Carpenter uses the same people through all of his movies. Like if you look at all these, like Charles Cyphers, Adrian Barbeau, uh Tom Atkins, they all pop up in all of his movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and if we were joking earlier about, you know, movies full of character actors, but not only are these, but to your point, a lot of them are the same character actors. Yeah, like, it's like, I I do like when a director utilizes the same crew, actors, you know, cinematographers, whatever, because it shows a sense of loyalty from that director that he respects and appreciates when people do work well with him, or he's able to work well with them. Yeah. Yeah, well, and and you develop kind of a rhythmic shorthand with somebody who knows you well enough. I mean, that's why a lot of the Dean Cundy shot films from the 80s have this look that's being ripped off ad nauseum nowadays. The two of them knew how to work together in tandem. Yeah, and something that I keep thinking about when we talk about these is there's something in all of these movies that is, maybe with the exception of Escape from L.A., but there's something in all these movies that's a little ahead of its time. Absolutely, and well, I mean... Can I change my answer to the uh, shot of uh, Snake Plissken surfing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I don't know. Escape from its from L.A. seems very of its time. Yeah, Escape from L.A. is aggressively of its time, down <laughs> to the fact that like the riff heavy soundtrack. It's got a fucking Tori Amos song in it. It does. So that's actually a good way to leap over into sound, because one thing that I want to talk about in terms of Escape from L.A. is how the sound and the soundtrack specifically is aggressively of its time, because this is... Aggressively, like early rap rock, like my God, it is so 1996. Well, and the thing is, like, within five years of this, he'd be having, like, Anthrax and Buckethead doing Ghosts of Mars sounds. But this is him definitely starting to flirt with not only, you know, very much that new metal rap rock sound, but it's also him sort of starting to step away from the compositions that made so many of his movies classics in favor of sick drop D riffs. <laughs> well, he also had help with the score on this one. Yes. Uh, yeah, I think so. Shirley Walker co-wrote the score with him, which is, you know, not, it's not unheard of. A lot of people have co-written scores. With John Carpenter, Alan Hallworth did uh, Escape from New York with him, and then, in turn, Carpenter tossed him Halloween 2. <laughs> but uh, I think, rap, but Carpenter using, like, the drop D riffs, like the uh, the new metal and uh, that rock and roll in uh, Escape from New York, or rather in Escape from LA, like, I think, I, I'd be curious to ask him this now. He's a rock and roll guy. He's from the rock and roll era. When I interviewed him, he said he was young, he was old enough to remember seeing Elvis on the Ed Sullivan show, like he was in a rock band with, uh, he's in the Coupe de Bills with Tommy Lee Wallace and, uh, shame on me. Oh, Nick Castle. Is this him trying to be ultra hip or is this him? Was he just with the times? Like, he's like, this is the new rock and roll. This, this is, is the stuff. The moment, this yeah. is stuff that I like now. I want to say it's a bit a and a bit B because if I may, um, this movie, like, you could argue that it's Carpenter, like, trying to reflect the time, and God knows he was, you know, we're, like, in the apex era of alt-rock radio right around this time, among other things, but this is a soundtrack that includes cuts from Stabbing Westward, The Butthole Surfers, Sugar Ray, Tori Amos, Ministry, and The Deftones. That's so 96. Yup. It's not a bad lineup. It's not a bad lineup. It's just so enough, of its time. Oddly enough, Sugar Ray is the best band out there. <laughs> you know, we hold this it. This is a ministry town. You better be careful. I was, I, I was going to say. He wrote the Blackhawks, too, and that's all Jorgensen ever did. Aw, oh, man. <laughs> I don't want to get into the legacy of wax tracks on this episode of filmography, so. I think I'll have to let that affront slide only this once. But no, it, it is like an aggressively 90s soundtrack. And as I'm looking at it, it's somehow making me laugh more and more. Not only because this is absolutely a record I would have wanted to own when I was seven, to the point where I'm actually kind of surprised that I didn't. I don't think I knew anybody that had the Escape from LA soundtrack. And now I'm kind of surprised. That's an interesting point, because this was the golden age of the movie soundtrack. The, this era, I mean, this is what Lost Highway came out the year after. This is July. Uh, Empire Ma- Records came out what yeah. a year or two before. It would have been the Pulp year Fiction before. Fiction was two years before. It was it was the golden age of the soundtrack. Yeah, and this like very much in every way reads like a soundtrack that was curated to be market demographic to tested. sell at Camelot yeah. Music. I used to work at Camelot <laughs> Music. Wait, uh, not to get too off on the soundtracks, but I always remember like the first Scream soundtrack 
has a bunch of bands that I don't think anybody remembers. Mm-hmm. But then once that movie was a hit, the Scream 2 soundtrack had like a roster of all the biggest and best. Yeah, it was that. I mean, yeah, like the uh, studios artists. and the record labels were definitely working together around that time. Every film had a soundtrack and you'd buy them on CDs. Yeah. And especially when you had like, and I mean, this is like 10 years after the soundtrack era really began in earnest with stuff like Top Gun, granted, and like the era of the number one soundtrack. But this, I would say in particular, was the era of the rock soundtrack. Yeah, I think this was the golden age of the rock soundtrack was between like, I don't know what, like 93 and 97. Ninety, I think even ninety four, ninety five. Once, uh, once kind of the grunge and alternative movement, uh, kind of really kicked in. Of course, what was it, ninety two that they? Yeah, alt alt rock in its classic phase was pretty much over by nineteen ninety five. Oh yeah, no people people who weren't around in the nineties don't realize that it was really only cool for about two weeks. Yeah, and then yeah. you started to get like only the, the front half of the nineties was cool. Then you had the post grunge movement. Yeah. Which your tonics and your semisonics and, and so on and so forth. Creed like. Oh yeah. my God! When that first record came out, that my own prison. Uh, and then Britpop was big after that. Like people thought they was so rocking, and then it was like, oh wait a minute, they're singing about Jesus. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with arms wide open. Yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about that now. <laughs> they are a bad band, but a great drunk karaoke band. <laughs> oh, I bet. Which is like a very precarious bell curve at which Creed is at the very top. Yeah, <laughs> but I don't even remember the Escape from LA soundtrack being like. Stolen which a is lot strange, from Camelot right? music, which seems like it would have been one one of the ones that was stolen. It's quite strange, a bit. right, that it's not a you know not remembered in the same as or even something like the Judgment Night soundtrack. Well, and I think like the Judgment Night thing at least had like the distinction of its gimmick. Like half of those songs are brutal now, but at least everyone remembers like the rap rock or the rap rock collab before that became all of music for about five sure, years. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. In 93, it was still kind of novel. Cool. Yeah. It was still cool. In, when judgment Night came out. Yeah. So LA is very much from like its own kind of era. And then everything else we're talking about is jumping back quite a bit in the time machine. So in that spirit, I want to go back to escape from New York because with Escape and Assault, we're talking about two of the classic Carpenter scores. Very similar ones in a lot of respects, I would argue. Yeah, and I think both very influenced by Westerns in the, in the way the, uh, I mean, even Othal synthesized, synthesized. It is obviously influenced by Spaghetti Westerns of the 60s, and that's very Carpenter, I suppose. Yeah, hey. And they're also very simple. Like, there's not a lot to them, I yeah. don't think. Well, and again, we talked about the pulse earlier, but that's the thing. There's like the pulse. There's the one thing I noticed, especially in Assault on Precinct 13, is how he has almost like these skittering synthesized snare sounds. And I swear I'm not trying to be like cutesy and alliterative. It's just how I got there. Okay, I alliterate all the time. I know, and I always feel like a certain, like, a film about me after. But I, um, but no, I, I love the sound of it because, again, it's so stripped down because it's very bare bones because more than anything, it fits the visual tone around it. You know, this is all like lower tones, especially with the synthier ends of the score. Like, it's all bass tone almost. Yeah, well, that's an interesting point. You know, when Carpenter, you talked a lot about the rhythm of Escape from New York and, you know, Carpenter's doing the soundtrack. So maybe that's all kind of of a piece, you know, he's setting the rhythm when he's making the music. 
Well, and it, and I would honestly, I'd be really curious to know like where it came in the process because he's yeah, he's exactly. very non-committal in discussing that kind of thing. Lord knows, but he's very non-committal in discussing anything. Yeah, except for basketball. Seventy-year-old John Carpenter in the wild in one form or another. Like he likes video games. Yeah, ask him about his classic films or scores. You know, polite interest, not a ton. Ask him about video games or basketball, nicest man on earth. Mm-hmm. He doesn't like talking about himself, I don't think. He really likes Dave Clark 5. That was the best thing that I got out of him. <laughs> yeah, he's a notoriously tough interview, too. But again, kindly, just not sure, about he like... he just doesn't, he's just not, he just doesn't care. Yeah. He's like, what? I mean, he was like, that was a long time ago. Why are you asking me about that? Because <laughs> like, it's Halloween, and he's like, ah... And it's amazing, too, because, like, nowadays, Carpenter's touring, playing a lot of his classic score pieces and releasing a lot of, like, previously unheard material. And in all of those sets, you always hear something from Escape and you always hear something Mm -hmm. from Assault on Precinct 13 because both of those are kind of, I would argue, definitive of what we call the Carpenter sound. You know, the Carpenter sound is something that, like, critics throw around all the time, especially now that, like... In the past five years or so, synth tone has returned to the forefront as a major score aesthetic. But, you know, there's a reason it was coined. And I think a lot of it is how much he was able to do within, you know, the whole synthesizer spectrum of sound. And I would argue a lot of these scores now that are called, you know, Carpenter-esque, like they get a lot of it wrong. They're usually too busy. I think. Yeah. Much like his screenwriting, I think Carpenter is very lean and very economical in the way that he composes music. A lot of it probably had to do with time and budget, too, which is why they're so simple. And I think, I mean, look no further than Escape from New York or Assault on Precinct 13 for that. Like, I think anybody, I think any one of us with a minimal knowledge of keyboards could probably come up, could probably play along to that. Sure. I don't know if we can come up with it. No, not come up with it. No. <laughs> I couldn't. I can't write songs. Like, it's a very mysterious process to but, me. But, yeah, it's these it's these couple notes. Like, he does, it, there's not a lot of differentiation. In fact, I think uh, even with Escape from New York, they're saying they tried to just alter the sound of the synthesizer rather than the actual way they were playing it, the notes they were playing. Well, to your point, Mike, when uh, when I saw John Carpenter play live... I if it was anyone else I'd be like eh, it's kind of a rip off but because uh, it's John Carpenter you love it he he plays with one hand for a lot of the show because a lot of the lines are pretty simple he just kind of stands up there and bops back and forth and plays the the lead line with one hand it's it's fun <laughs> he's got he's got his band doing the hard work on that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you know, I mean, he he's at the point, you know, he invented an entire scoring sound. I I feel like you get a certain level of leeway at that point in your career. Oh, absolutely. And I a lot of me wonder like if he did have a larger budget, would he have turned to synthesizers or would he we gotten more traditional scores? Oh, that would have changed Carpenter. That would have changed the course of horror film history right there. Yeah, because it, a lot of it he said the reason uh for the Halloween score was due to budget. And I imagine it was the same for Assault on Precinct 13 since that was two years prior. Yeah, had to have been. Yeah. And that's really interesting, too, especially when you consider that, like, we talked about Village of the Damned a couple weeks ago. By then, him and Dave Davies are doing, like, orchestral transpositions of the Carpenter sound to that point. So it was clearly something he was interested in exploring eventually. It just, yeah, it is really strange to think about the alternative timeline where, like, 
And I mean, even going beyond film scoring, I mean, how much synthwave music would have missed out on happening without the Carpenter sound? Sure. Yeah. Um, Well, well, this is another question, like uh, similar to the tone of Escape from New York. If you were like, what is the Carpenter sound? You'd be like, uh, synthesizers. Like, it's hard to articulate also. There's a lot about John Carpenter that's hard to articulate. I think it's all simplicity. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. Leanness, economicalness yeah. in, all of, in all of his best works, I yeah. think. Economy really is, like, as a directorial signature, I would argue that economy might be John Carpenter's. And therefore, which is why his low-budget work it tends to be better. <laughs> <laughs> but, he thrives under those conditions. <laughs> yeah. And actually, on that point, I want to... Kind of move into our final discussion only because I think we can all agree that the score for Someone's Watching Me by Harry Suckman is extremely TV thriller of the it's week fine. for its time. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's very it's Hitchcock, much it's Hitchcock exploitation. Yeah, it's all sharp violin hits for moments of scare, which granted we're still aping decades later and just making the violin hits a lot louder. <laughs> but, but it's not Carpenter. But it's not Carpenter. So. And I actually think, like, so keeping that whole discussion of kind of economy in mind, to close, I just want to pose to the two of you, how do you think that economy factors into, you know, like, some of the theme we've been talking about throughout the episode, like Carpenter and the Man, like, how does that economy align with, like, the way he views a lot of the world in these movies? Because he has no time for bullshit, that's why. I think because of his economy and things, it's easy for... I think it's easy for somebody who maybe is not a film student or who just watches movies to watch movies to able to wrap their head around like, oh, uh, Assault on Precinct 13 is about white flight. Uh, Escape from New York is about urban decay. Uh, Mm -hmm. Escape from L.A. is about um, the, what do I want to say, about... The the right wingers of the nineties. Well, it's because it's about it's about left wingers too. It's about a loss mm. of loss of freedom, loss of liberty. Okay, I think like and it's real. It's very on the nose because of the leanness of his storytelling. Not that he necessarily well with Escape from L.A. He really kind of puts it on the nose. I think, but I think a lot of about Escape from L.A. is on the nose. There's nothing mm. subtle about that movie. No, certainly not. And with something like Someone's Watching Me, I mean, again, like it it's right there. It's Stalking is bad, and there's a problem with authority figures that don't listen to women. And Yeah, and you need to listen to women, because they know what they're talking about. So I think, yeah, I think the economy helps him get his themes across uh, in an efficient fashion. Well, like Peter Fonda before us, we're going to catch the perfect wave on out of here on that <laughs> note. I want to thank, before we close things up for episode three... I want to thank both of you for joining me. I want to thank Kat Blackard and Michael Rothman for all the continued support at the Consequence Podcast Network. You can find us, at least Filmography, you can find us on Facebook slash Filmography Podcast. That's where we'll have all our updates and pertinent announcements for the future. You can find me at D. Suzanne Mayer on Twitter. I'm pretty bad at it, but I'm always on it. Where can the goodly people of the internet find you two? Uh, I am on Twitter at Future Schlock. Uh, future as in the time that has not yet passed, and Schlock like the John Landis movie. You can find me on Twitter at Mike Vanderbilt. I was an early adopter to most social media, so I got my name with no <laughs> silly letters or numbers afterwards. Or I don't have to put the real Mike Vanderbilt like there's a fake one out there. Just Mike 
Vanderbilt. Real easy. Well, but that only means that when the imposter Vanderbilt's account pops up one day, you're going to have a real problem on your hands. Well, yeah, because they're not going to verify me either. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I missed the payoff or whatever on that one. <laughs> Well, as always, you can leave us a review on iTunes, Podchaser, or wherever else you procure fine podcasts. We are also not the only Consequence Podcast Network production. You can also listen to This Must Be the Gig, Lear Phillips' ongoing interview series with some of your favorite artists. The Losers Club, our Stephen King-obsessed podcast. Halloweenies, our standalone podcast series about the Halloween franchise. And State of the Empire, our long-tenured Star Wars program. As always, you can find us on Twitter at Consequence for Consequence of Sound, Facebook slash Consequence of Sound. Filmography is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcasts at consequenceofsound.net. This show is recorded, produced, and engineered in Chicago, Illinois by me, Dominic Suzanne Mayer. Thank you both again for joining me, and we'll see you all next week. Consequence Podcast Network.